So how's this new boy you're going out with? He's cute, very funny, but it's a little weird. He's always in the corner back by the wood pile. Okay. <laughs> Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. My guest back by the woodpile today is a seminal musician, to say the least. As a drummer, Aaron, the A-Train Smith, has played with artists ranging from the 77s to Romeo Void to Ray Charles to even the Temptations, notably on the recording of the monster hit Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Today we're going to talk about the front end of Mr. Smith's career, but since I feel his general story has been told pretty well, on other programs, notably by our friends over at the Catacomb Podcast, episode 18, and Aaron's own program, Intersect, on the Intertalk Radio Network, episodes 29, 30, and 31, we're going to try to go a little deeper into the man's life and career. So, first of all, you grew up in Durham, North Carolina? Correct. Right. Mm -hmm. So, what was the first music that you remember hearing that you're like, man, that's something I want to do. I want to be part of that. I have to say it was probably the Beatles on Ed Sullivan's show. Like, oh, yeah. Like most people of my generation, you know, that was a new thing. You so, know? you witnessed it? Yes. Wow. Yeah. On black and white TV. Ladies and gentlemen... Here are four of the nicest chances we've ever had on our stage. The Beatles, bring them on! I mean, what did you think? Well, I just thought, man, this is this is great, you know? Look at all those girls going crazy over these guys. <laughs> that, that looks pretty exciting, you know? You can do that. But they were special. I mean, there was rock and roll before that. Yeah. But, but what made them special in your mind? I guess it was just the energy, you know, uh, up to that point, you know, it was like the Letterman. There was some Elvis Presley, but not much. Everything was kind of conservative up until the Beatles. Which is interesting because they're British. Yeah, and most of their musical learning came from American music, you know, right. blues, uh, R&B. But there is something about outsiders that can look at a culture maybe from a different point of view and then make it something different. I, I find mm -hmm. that in, in many, many aspects. Yeah, they embrace it and make it their own, yeah. you know, and feed it back to us. You know, it's like a new thing for us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> something, you know. But it was that. And then, you know, they just kind of opened the door to all those British acts. You know, it was just a flood of that kind of stuff after the Beatles. I got to ask, as a drummer, and... I guess famously your drumsticks were in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for a time next mm -hmm. to Ringo's. Mm -hmm. What do you think of Ringo as a drummer? Because I know some people like to make fun of him a little bit, his ability. But in my opinion, he kept a great beat. Yeah, he was a great drummer for them. He played the songs. It wasn't all about fast 16th notes and 32nd notes and all that sort of stuff. Uh, he played the song.
he played just like any other drummer during that time. You know, they played the song. Things have, have kind of progressed now in musical technique for all instruments, you know. And now you got YouTube. You know, a kid can go on YouTube and learn how to play drums or anything. You know, we didn't have that back then, you know. It was just a matter of, you just had to have the desire mm -hmm. back then. Right. And a little bit of money and, and a parent that believed in you. And Yeah, my parents never encouraged me to practice or anything. You know, I didn't know about practice. As a kid, practice was getting together with your friends and playing, trying to play a, a song, mm -hmm. a, a very popular song at the time. You know, that was practice, you know. I didn't know anything about uh, practicing by myself. Couldn't, wouldn't have happened anyway, because it, it was me and my mom in an apartment, and uh, that wouldn't have worked. <laughs> so, as you've covered in the other podcast, your mom helps you get a drum set. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. She got information from a band leader, our band director, who was also the choir director at our church. You know, so yeah. drums were okay in the church at that time. No, oh dang, no. <laughs> as I say, nobody had drums in church at that time. But uh, I was in junior high school band, about to go to high school. She wanted to know if I was progressing or and if it'd be worthwhile investing in a drum set. And he said, "Oh yeah, get him a drum set." That's cool. Yeah. So she uh, sent me. We have a friend that lived in New York City, and she sent me to New York on a Greyhound bus with a, a money order, and I went to Manny's Music. Wow. Yeah, and picked out a Silver Sparkle Ludwig kit. How did you get that thing home, back on the bus? UPS. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> took forever. Did it all come as one unit, or a bunch yeah. of little boxes? Or? Well, you know, a bunch of little boxes, uh -huh. but um, it took forever. Man, I thought it was gonna never come. You know, uh, speedy deliveries were the Thing. <laughs> <Yeah. Right. laughs> so to jump ahead, eventually you, you find that you're pretty good at drumming and uh, other people start to notice your talent and you start to play for some major groups in the region, right? Mm. What were some of those groups? Well, I played in uh, a band in my hometown called the Jammers, the Jamming Jammers. Now, did y'all ever record? No, we never recorded. I had both my band directors, my band director from junior high, my band director from high school were both in the band. They played saxophone. My best friend played bass. And um, there was another drummer there, Peter Jorner, who later went on to play with uh, Junior Walker and the All-Stars. Oh, wow. We had a keyboard player who was homosexual. Yeah. And this is like 1967, 66, 67. Not in the closet. Not in the closet at all. Very <laughs> flamboyant. And um, all his flamboyant friends would come, you know. And so it was quite the show. We'd start off the night playing instrumentals. Then our guitarist would play uh, songs by Joe Tex and people like that. Mm -hmm. Then we had another guy who would come on and sing uh, songs by Jerry Butler. Then after that, while he's doing his thing, I would join him, and we did a, we had a Sam and Dave act. Mm -hmm. You know, and Peter played drums uh, while we did Sam and Dave. And then we had Claudette, our female vocalist. She would come on and do the 
Supremes and all that sort of stuff, the most current female songs. And then I joined her, and we did a Marvin Gaye, Tammy Terrell thing, you know. So that's one thing I never knew, that you actually could sing. I could back then. I can't now. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, I don't know. I think I just blew it out, you know. Did you ever record in Durham? Once. It was for a friend of mine. His name was Lil Nick. Nick was a tailor when he was in high school. He was in a singing group, and he made all the outfits for everybody. They were on Soul Train. Before they did that record, we did what would probably be considered a demo for him to get a record deal. just remember it. I'm there with all my buddies. There was no pressure, you know. We just play the song. Okay, we knew the song. Just play the song. And went, oh, yeah, that sounds great. They went on Soul Train. They played the Apollo. That's how they got their record deal because um, they would have talent night at the Apollo every Wednesday night, I think. And they went up and they won. I think they had to go up like three times before they actually won. After that, I don't know what happened to the group. I think, I think it was drugs happened to the group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these guys got strung out on heroin. It was very strange because I had sang in boys' choir with most of these guys, you know, and we grew up together in school. And um, they had a manager, a road manager, that was uh, kind of a little small-town gangster, mm-hmm. you know, and um, he bought him a Winnebago. And we would go around the South playing in this Winnebago. The rule was that you couldn't use the bathroom just to urinate, you know? You could urinate, but nothing. Yeah, no pooping in the bathroom. (laughs) To be clear. (laughs) (laughs) So, and they didn't, but what they would do is they'd go in the bathroom and shoot up, and then they'd drop their matches in the toilet, which is plastic. Mm. So it had all these burn marks over it, and and that kind of went south. He, Willie, was his name, the road manager, got arrested. I think it was for tax evasion. And it must have been pretty serious because they put him in the uh, federal prison where Hinckley was. Dang. He got us a gig there. At the, the prison? prison. Uh-huh. We went up and played for the, for all the guys. And What years was this? 1968, 69. Yeah, it was the weirdest thing, man, because we go up there and got all this equipment. And we have to take the equipment out, go through this one first set of gates, empty everything out, let them put it back in, go about 15 yards, there's another gate, do the same thing, take everything out, and then they, three times. To make sure you're not smuggling something yeah. in. or mm-hmm. yeah. So we get there, and there's this really nice little auditorium, and we set up. As we're just finishing, the lights come on in the... Out in the auditorium, two files of men start filing into the auditorium, not saying a word. And they take their chairs, and there's Willie, and he all he can do is wave because they can't say anything. They can't wow. talk, make any noise, you know. And we, we're waving back at him, you know. And That's pitiful. So, yeah, yeah, it was it was horrible. The lights went out, 
and I think we're running to our third song, and the lights come back on. And as soon as the lights come back on, all the guys stand up and they file out without saying a word. Nobody says anything. And we're like, what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) While you're still playing the song. (laughs) Yeah, they don't like us? What? They have a time limit. You know, they could only have so much time. Never saw Willie again. Do you know if he's still living or? Probably not. He was an older guy then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any day now. I will hear you say goodbye, my love, and you'll be on your way. Then Eventually, you get the attention of some pretty big people, and you end up in Motown in Detroit. Mm-hmm. What was the first gigs that got you involved with that bunch of folks? Well, we had a lot of musicians in my hometown, and um, there was this Motown artist, Chuck Jackson. Mm-hmm. He had a hit called Any Day Now. His entire band was from my hometown. It was Chuck from Durham? Mm-mm. I don't know how that started, but um, Chuck was from New Jersey. So he hired this band. They were going to the Caribbean for a week. And they needed a drummer. And they asked me if I wanted to go. And I asked my mom if I could go. And she said, okay. And, you know, it's funny. We didn't rehearse or anything. It's just like everybody knew the stuff, you know, because we played it. We mimicked it, you know, every weekend. So I'm sitting there this, this day. I think it was on a Thursday. I got my drums packed in the living room. I said goodbye to my mom. She's going off to work. When my mom came home from work, I was still sitting in the living room with my drums. And I didn't find out until a week after that, when they got back, what had happened. Because, you know, there's no phone call or anything. You know. They had decided to let the guitarist play drums because he had some knowledge of drums. And there was one less ticket to buy, you know, one less person. And so when they got back, it was one of the first things they did was call me. And, um, and they did apologize. And... Um, told me, you know, what happened. But if I wanted to do it, I still had the gig. Huh. And so I said, okay. My mom said, okay. And from that, we worked the Chitlin Circuit up and down the East Coast, you know, mm-hmm. and um, worked our way to Detroit, and we played the 20 Grand Ballroom, mm-hmm. which um, a lot of Motown acts had done live recordings, live records in. We did the show, and Norman Whitfield, who was a producer at Motown, came to the show. And I don't know why, but he liked my playing. He approached me and said, and told me that he was um, putting together this new band called The Undisputed Truth. And they were going to have a big hit, and he was putting the band together for them, and would I be willing to move up to Detroit and, and be in the band? What, now, what year was this? This was 1970. And uh, I said, sure. You know, he said, okay, well... I gave him my, my mom's phone number, and um, that next day, well, he asked me to come and do a session that next day. And that day I went in and I did a session with the Funk Brothers, and it was Smiling Faces, but it was the Temptations version. that I was trying, actually trying to not go t- in the Army. So Chuck 
sent me to this doctor for an exam. And so the doctor uh, wrote a phony exam, said that I had bad knees and stuff like that. And we sent it in. And your knees, are, your knees are fine. Yeah, my knees are fine. <laughs> and we, <laughs> we sent it in to uh, wherever you send this thing in because uh, my mom, I had called home and my mom told me that I had a draft notice. You know, and uh, that didn't fly, you know, the bad knees thing. And, right. and so uh, I, got a, I got a second notice to report in January. It was mid-January of 1971. So I went in the Army, and I was there for about a month and two weeks or something. Well, I was two weeks shy of getting out of basic training. It's like you're doing all this thing, marching, cleaning weapons. You have to call it a weapon. Mm -hmm. can't call it a gun. You're just learning drill. You're being... um, They're breaking you down, right? They're breaking you down, forcing you to cooperate with each other, work as a group, mm-hmm. you know, destroying individuality, mm-hmm. you know. So two weeks before basic ends, they send you out to this rifle range in full army gear, helmet, everything, and you, you just stand in foxholes and, and shoot at targets. Mm-hmm. Well, on this, on our day to do that, it was raining really hard when we woke up, and it rained really hard all day. You know, it's really hard to see the targets and everything. That night, I broke out uh, with a rash, and I had long wets on my back, you know, and um, I went and told my drill sergeant the next morning, and he sent me to the, to the um, company physician who looked at me and sent me to the base doctor, the doctor over the entire Fort Jackson, South Carolina base, and... Uh, he took a look at me and he said, um, well, you can stay in the Army, you know, and we'll give you medication for the rest of your life, or you can get out. Now, the whelps was caused by the detergent. Detergent, Detergent, right? yeah. Detergent and the clothes had washed out because of the rain. Mm. And, you know, I was in the Army having a good time, actually. You know, I, I had just considered, felt that it was, that's what I was going to be doing, you know, because I didn't see any way out. I had a friend who was a drummer, and uh, we were from the same hometown, and he played in the uh, the rival band, and his name was Rock Norman. And Rock, we used to call him a country boy because he was big and strong. He and his brothers made their own weights out of coffee cans and cement and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. And Rock put together this really humongous drum set. What I mean by humongous was like the bass drum was a big concert bass drum. The mounted tom was a floor tom. And so he had like an, and another real, you know, floor tom on the floor <laughs> and cymbals and huge drums. Did and, it sound any good? Oh yeah, it sounded great. It was big. <laughs> it was like thunderous. But he wasn't playing rock. He's playing like stacks, Motown stuff. Well, yeah, but, which, you know. which, I mean, that would lend itself <clears throat> to a big funky sound, right? I mean, was it funky? Oh enough? yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it yeah. wasn't sloggy or anything? Yeah. Right. No. Yeah. But it was, he put it together himself. It wasn't like he went out and bought a drum right. set, you know. And uh, rumor had it that he made his own drumsticks, you know. I, I can't confirm that on that, but he was a great guy. Out of femur bones or something? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we went in the Army together. And we were on the bus going down to um, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, together that night. The whole bus is filled with recruits, you know. 
and uh, we're sitting together, and he's going, man, I can't do this. I can't, I just can't do this. I got to find a way to get out. And I was going, man, it's, it's going to be all right. Nah, I got to get out. His barracks was right across the street from mine. I looked out one morning, and he's sitting. It was a Saturday morning. Usually on Saturdays, there's, there's nothing to do. But, of course, mop and make your bed and make sure everything is just right in your locker and everything because in any minute the drill sergeant could come in and just start throwing stuff over, mm-hmm. you know, and kicking stuff and unmaking your bed. And, if it's not right. Yeah. Or yeah. So I look out the window and there he is sitting on the curb with his head down between his legs, you know. And so I go out and I go, Rock, what's the matter? And he goes, I told you, I have to get out of here. He said, they think I have a migraine headache. And um, I, I just, I got to do this. So he's talking to me in a normal voice, telling me what he's, what he's about to do. But when he looks up, he's like grimacing, you know, and puts his head back down, you know. And he got out. He got out. But I got out maybe two weeks, three weeks after that, because I told the doctor that, you know, I really didn't know if I wanted to stay in or get out because, you know, I had, you made friends and stuff like that, and he cut me short, and he said, listen, soldier, you either stay in or you get out. But he didn't want the story. No, he didn't want the story. So I said, okay, <laughs> let me out. And he went down the hall, came back, had papers, and went, there, you're out. And so I go home that night. The next day, I go out, and I'm looking for my friends, you know, and I find out The Rock is now in in jail, he's in prison. Because he came home and uh, the lead singer in his band was having an affair with his wife. And he shot him in the face with a shotgun. Dang. And blew off half his face, didn't kill him. Really? Yeah. And uh, it's like, maybe you should have stayed in the army. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) And after he got out, he got out, you know, he, he served his time, got out. But he was never right after that, you know. He did things like, uh, he was an auto mechanic, and that's how he made his living after mm-hmm. that. He bought two cars, identical. <laughs> and it's like, Rock, why are you buying the same car? He said, ah, oh, man, you know, I don't know. It's pretty cool, though. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> they sit in the driveway next to each other. Yeah, two Cadillacs, same, identical. <laughs> and even after I was on the road, and I would come home, he would hear that I was home, and he'd come over to my house like 7 in the morning on his way to his garage, you know. And we'd sit there in my mom's kitchen and drink coffee and talk about old times and stuff like that. And, but anyway, when I got out, I got my gig back with Chuck Jackson because mm-hmm. uh, I only had been gone like a couple of months. We worked around, and then we finally worked our way back to Detroit because I didn't have Norman's number or anything like that. And Norman came to the show. And after our show, he came back to the stage. He says, where you been? He says, I've been calling that number you gave me, you know, and I didn't get any answer. I said, well, you know, it's my mom's number. She was working during the day. There's no voice message or message machines back then. And so I tell him my story, you know, that I've been in the Army. (laughs) And uh, he goes, well, you still want to do this? I said, sure. He said, okay. In October, I'm going to send you a plane ticket, and you come up and live here, and you guys start practicing, rehearsing, and then you start touring. 
for the t- the undisputed truth. Mm. By this time, their version of Smile and Faces was out, and it was a big hit. So, sure enough, in October, he sends me a ticket. I pack up my bags and things, and uh, I had to send my drums via air freight. Norman comes out. This is when you could do this sort of thing. He drives on the uh, tarmac up to the plane in his Jaguar XKE, get my bag off the plane, and we get in, and he, he, he says, don't worry about your drums, just give me the receipt for them, and I'll have somebody pick them up. We go downtown, downtown Detroit. He's already booked a room for me. Um, that's when it starts. Let me tell you, let me tell you, the things you do is stay. Determine the balance. Can you live Your conscience is a flawless judge and jury that only questions you when you're wrong. I'm telling you the natural facts for what it's worth. Okay, so you're starting to record with the Undisputed Truth? I did record with them, but uh, when we started, we mainly started uh, rehearsing a show. It was me, uh, this guy Leroy Taylor from uh, Kentucky, Billy Cooper, who who is now Wally Ali. He and I had played in a band together in Durham, and when I left Durham to go to Detroit, he was still there, and Norman was going, well, do you know any guitar players? And so I said, oh, yeah, I know a great guitar player. Norman sent for him. He came up to Detroit. We had this guy named Justice. I still don't know Justice's real name, but his name was Justice. He was from Ohio. He this played, is what he called himself? Yeah. Uh-huh. He played guitar, and but before he came, Wawa Watson played mm-hmm. a bit. Uh, and then Wawa decided he really didn't want to go out on the road. He was making killing in the studios in Detroit. And, and so we had a rehearsal space, and we rehearsed, and we rehearsed, and we rehearsed. And Norman would call me in for sessions. At the time, he was only producing The Temptations, The Undisputed Truth. And he ended up producing David Ruffin, who had been in The Temptations. and, and had. So th- by this time, David had left The Temptations? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, during that time is when I went in and I recorded Papa Was a Rolling Stone. I did three or four albums with The Temptations because every time we were home, Norman would have me come in and play sessions. We really didn't start working a lot until the summer of 1972. We went out on tour with the Jackson 5. Okay, so I'm going to start asking you about certain folks and give me some impressions or memories or stories. Okay, Okay. so let's talk about Norman Whitfield first off. Norman was great. He's really good to me. Sometimes he would just call me down to the studio just to give me money. Really? You know, yeah, he'd give me like a hundred bucks, ask me if I was doing all right. That's pretty rare in the music industry. Oh, yeah. There were times where on a regular basis he would call me and give me $50 and say, go downtown and buy some records. And just bring them back to me. Whatever you want to buy, buy it and bring them back and we'll listen to them or something. We never sat down and listened to records together, but 
you know, I listened to all the records mm -hmm. that I bought, you know, and I was, I was buying mostly rock records. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we had that relationship going. We, it still lasted up until 1975 or 76, because I moved to L.A. Once, once uh, we did the tour, right after that time, Motown was leaving. Moved to Los moved, Angeles. Yeah. yeah. I had gotten a call from Cornelius Grant after the Undisputed Truth tour to come and audition for The Temptations. I went over to Cornelius's house and uh, auditioned with a reel-to-reel -reel recording of the show and music charts. I, I faked my way through that, really, because... Because uh, you don't read charts too well. I didn't read charts at all back then. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I had I had played in a band at home called Imitating Temptations. Uh -huh. You know, it was a singing group at school, and so they did the whole Temptations show, and, and we learned it. You know, so this you know he puts this big book in front of me, and I'm kind of going, you know, I'm not too freaked out about it, <laughs> because at this point, you know, I'm still kind of naive, you know, young naive. Have you always been this low key? Me? Yeah. As you are now in front of me? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. that would make sense. <laughs> Nothing phases you. <laughs> no. And um, so he opens up the book, puts the music in order for me, turns on the recording. I'm looking at it. I know the name of the song. You know, I know that song, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure by looking at the chart just how it's going to go. And then once the music starts, it's like, I got this, yeah. you know, and so I'm like looking at the thing, but I'm playing from memory, you know. Right. I'm sorry. Anyway, I got the gig. <laughs> Mama looked up with a tear and I said, "Son." Now, did you ever interact much with Barry Gordy, or was he out of the picture at that point? He was still there. I, mean, I only probably saw Barry once, and I went down to headquarters once because Norman was down there. So there was a time that Barry was hands-on, but then <coughs> by the time you got there, was Norman kind of the guy that was producing a lot of the groups? or? Well, Norman was producing. Norman had his own thing going on. I see. You know, Norman was the rock guy. Mm -hmm. Norman was the pro more progressive Everybody else there was still doing like Motown stuff, you know. Yeah, kind of doo-woppy. Yeah, um, R&B. Still doing uh, like the Supremes and stuff mm -hmm. like that, and, and the Four Tops. And but they, everybody eventually would come on board with Norman's sound. Right? Well, yeah, because it was so successful, right. you know. And so um, it was the future, I'd say. Yeah, it was the future because yeah, he loved uh, Slide and Family Stone and all those groups, you know, and. Um, while I lived in Detroit, FM radio became a thing, mm -hmm. you know. Prior to that, it had only been AM. Mm -hmm. And now we had FM radio, man, and you had all these long playing tunes. And some, some guys would just play a whole album, right. you know. There was no commercials, very little talking, just huh. music. It was great. So Norman was really into that. He was really into rock and psychedelia and putting that into the Motown thing, introduced the like psychedelic shag for the Temptations, that whole thing. Was it controversial at the time? Was there any kind of you know blowback or it was a little blowback. I, I think some of the Temptations were kind of leery about going in that direction, you know. 
because they were so successful with the things they had done prior to that, you know, kind of breaking new ground. They didn't all catch the vision right away. Okay, so the Temptations, I want to ask about some of the members. Like Otis mm-hmm. Williams, of course, was the guy that's kind of attributed, had started the Temptations. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Or at least he wrote the book. He outlived everybody. Right, right <laughs> he did, didn't he? Do you have any memories of him? He was this very gentle, soft-spoken guy. Otis is probably the uh, most uh, present and willing to talk to the band members. So there was a kind of a wall between the band and the actual singers? Well, it wasn't a wall, but, you know, we only saw each other at showtime, pretty much, and traveling. Sometimes we traveled together, you know, had flights together and stuff. But they always had first class and we were back in coach, you know, and that sort of thing. And, and then when we landed, it's like they disappeared and we had to get our gear. Mm-hmm. And that's when you could... We were flying gear. And but they didn't treat you bad or nothing? No, no, they didn't treat us bad. I mean, they were really, we had a lot of fun. There was never any uh, bad feelings or arguments or anything like that, ne- ever. Cornelius Grant was the liaison between the band and the singers. So if there was an issue, he would tell us what it was. Okay. You know. Do you have any particular stories about being on the road with the Temptations? I remember... <laughs> The first time I went to Japan with the Temptations, you know, you know, this is the 70s. This is when Japan was still Japan. There was not a, a lot of American presence, mm-hmm. you know, like in advertising and restaurants and, and that sort of stuff. We came in and when we got there, Three Dog Night was there as well. We were all staying in the same hotel. They were playing the Budokan and uh, we went that night and saw Three Dog Night at the Budokan. That next day... I was on the elevator, and there were these two or three Japanese guys on the elevator. And on the way down, one of them starts to talk to me, and the other guy translates. He's telling me that he's a singer at at Sony Records, you know, and he loves The Temptations. Could he take me out that night and show me the town? And I said, Sure, you know. <laughs> hi. And, uh, <laughs> hi. So I was about to get off the elevator and he held me back. And he said, one moment, one moment. And we went up to his room and he gave me a gift. You know how they have the food and the boxes, the mm-hmm. wooden boxes? Yeah. You know, he gave me that. And it's like, wow. You know, so I'm thinking, I got to give him something back. So I had this bangle, silver bangle. Mm-hmm. And I took it off and I gave it to him. And it just blew his mind. (laughs) We got back on the elevator and and the guy told me, he said, don't worry about anything, you know, we'll take care of everything. And at that point, he took out his wallet Uh and it was like thick with bills, with money, you know, cool. And we arranged the time and that night he came to pick me up. We had a limousine and we went uh, to about three different clubs. What were they like, the clubs? In Japan at that time. Oh man, it was like being on the Ed Sullivan show. Really? Yeah, they had, they had different acts like that. You know, uh, Japanese groups. You know, they weren't all Japanese. Uh-huh. They were European uh-huh. jugglers, uh, acrobats, some music, but very entertaining. Uh-huh. You know, 
and the geisha girls would come up to the table and light your cigarette or your drink, you know, translate. We had a translator between us. And um, so, yeah, I think I got back into the hotel around 5 that morning. We got up because we were playing the Budokan that next day. And they were going, man, where you been? <laughs> and I told them the story. And uh, I think that's one time when I was talking to Melvin and Otis at the same time. And because they were, you know, you shouldn't do that. You know, you, should, you shouldn't go out like that because anything could happen to you. You could disappear and we, we wouldn't know. And, and I was going, oh, man, yeah. I didn't think about that, but I had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> this Japanese guy that was the singer, supposedly, did you ever hear his music? Or? Never. Oh, my goodness. I, I never saw him again. Huh. I wonder who he was, you know. It's like a Japanese angel. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Melvin, talk about him a little bit, his personality. and Melvin was, he and Otis were a lot alike, very down to earth, didn't take their fame and, and success for granted. You know? So it didn't destroy them like it did, so, well, so many people, but other people in The Temptations. Mm -mm. Well, after Eddie and, and David were gone, you know, they were kind of like the only two original mm -hmm. Temptations, so they were, they were really tight. Right. They had always been really tight, very mature, cared about the success of the group, cared about their families and all that sort of stuff, and taking care of them. I never heard any rumors about any of them, actually, but uh, especially those two, very fortified. Oh, hey girl, this can't be true. So you guys got to play some shows of the Jackson 5. What was that like? Oh, man. It was the one of the hardest working times of my life. Because? Because, you know, the Jackson 5, the Jackson 5, we're the backup band for the Undisputed Truth. We have a station wagon and a U-Haul in the back. We're playing all the major rooms in the United States. Arenas, coliseums. And we have to get to every gig in time to do a sound check and play. And we're driving. Everybody else is, the Undisputed Truth is flying. The Jackson 5, of course, is flying. There were times when we had to literally hit the last note, get our stuff off the stage, get in the station wagon, and drive to the next gig just to be there on time. You know, there was that much. They weren't thinking about distance, you know, because they were flying and right. they had their trucks and stuff like that, you know, and, and uh, so we had to, we made a deal with their with their crew to carry our equipment so we wouldn't have to have the U-Haul, and I think we had to pay them like $10 a show or some, some <laughs> crazy amount of Man, money. hosing you down. <laughs> yeah, man, it wasn't easy, and so they put our gear on last so that when they got to the place, our gear would be the first to come off. 
They didn't even set it up. They just put it on stage. So we had literally had to get there in time to set up, do a sound check, mm-hmm. which was useless, mm-hmm. really, because we were the runts. <laughs> Nobody cared about us, you know. They'd care about you if you didn't show up. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe they'd get somebody else to do the gig, you know, or something like that. But we weren't going to do that. Uh, we were going to show up. By that time, I was the band leader, so I was in charge. It was my responsibility to get us to the next date, you know. Was there ever any difficulty in doing that? I mean, besides what you just told me, I mean, as far as, like, getting the band members to do what you wanted them to do? or Oh, yeah, because they were all older than me. So oh. <laughs> it was like taking directions from me when you know, I was, they always questioned my decision, mm. as, especially Leroy, the bass player. Oh, man, he was like thorn sometime you know he would always question uh something i had decided to do uh where we were going to stay because i'm i'm calling hotels too to make reservations there's no booking agent there's no booking agent not for us you know what time we should leave in in order to get there and how old were you at that time 21 my goodness man it was it was a hard tour you know we were with the jackson five but you know, did you ever get to interact with the Jackson Five at all? Yeah, a couple of times. Um, we were on the same flight somewhere together. It was one of these times. I think it was the last shows, and they were out in California, mm-hmm. and we got to fly out there. Was uh, their father Joe with them? Mm-hmm. The whole family was with them. Like even the girls. Yeah. Oh wow. They'd uh, have the whole floor of a hotel every time. They were just phenomenal. Because I think their dad drove them so hard. Did you hmm. see any of that, the, that discipline? or? No, they just seemed, every time we saw them, they were on stage or else running down the hall, screaming, playing. Mm-hmm. Oh, as little kids. Yeah. yeah. So they were allowed to be kids somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I remember having a, talking to Michael once. He was, he was 13. And it was just casual, like, so how you doing? Uh-huh. Are you tired yet? You know, and, and Ben had just come out, you know. Oh, yeah. And uh, we talked about that a little bit. But, you know, that was about it. Sometime after that, I had I had an audition with the Jackson 5, and uh, Jermaine came to pick me up mm-hmm. in his Porsche. And, <laughs> and that's when I discovered that Jermaine stuttered. Hmm. He had a really bad stutter. You know? I that. And they took me out to the house, and uh, once again, they put charts in front of me. And, but this time, I couldn't fake my way through it, you know. I didn't get the gig because they, they were about to go to Vegas. And uh, their cousin, who was their drummer, had, was being disciplined because he had gotten too many speeding tickets in his Corvette. Okay, so there's this guy named Mirzloff. How do you say his last name? Vitus. Yeah. Now, I was never a fusion jazz guy. Or I was just kind of the fringes of it. I knew people like Chick Corea and all that. But uh, tell folks who he is and how important he is, and then how you eventually got to play with him. Mm-hmm. Well, Mirzloff Vitus is a Czechoslovakian bass player. He and Jan Hammer mm-hmm. and Jan Hammer's brother, all from uh, Prague. The way Miroslav tells it is that when, when you're eight 
back then when you were eight years old or so, they pretty much, people or parents would kind of decide which direction you were going to go in in life. For Miroslav, it was music. <clears throat> and for Jan and Jan's brother, because that's where they, they met. As a trio, they won a scholarship to Berklee College of Music. But uh, Jan and Miroslav were the only two to come. Uh, Jan's brother didn't want to come. So Miroslav is pretty much a bass wizard. He was the original bass player in Weather Report. Uh, he's played with Chick Corea. He's done tons of records uh, for the ECM record label. A lot of solo stuff. He's played with Roy Haynes, uh, Terje Ripdahl, who's this uh, Norwegian, I think, guitarist. Miroslav's just great. But I had started listening to fusion while I was with The Temptations because we could take, I had a record player mm -hmm. that I took with me everywhere and I uh, set it up in my hotel room because usually we, when we went somewhere to play, we were like there for a week. What was the appeal of fusion to you? Because one thing I think the criticism of fusion is like there's no melody particularly, or there's no, mm. it's so complicated maybe, or sometimes it sounds like chaos to the uninitiated. Mm -hmm. How would you argue against that, or what did you find to be appealing about it? Uh, well, there is definitely melody and structure. There's a lot of structure to it. I mean, it could be complicated, musically complicated or in the chord structure and the progressions and that sort of stuff. But once you hear it, you got it. You know, it doesn't it doesn't stray too much from uh, the simple song form. It's just how you get there. Gotcha. You know. When I heard it, what did I hear first? Oh, yeah. I was in Detroit, still in Detroit, and and Eddie was Norman Whitfield's engineer. And Eddie and I were pretty good friends. And uh, one day, this one day I was at home and the phone rings and it's Eddie and he's just going like, what are you doing? Can you come down to Studio B? I got something I want you to hear. And I went, okay. So I go down to Studio B and Eddie's in there by himself. And Studio B is a big room where they do strings and stuff. Mm -hmm. and they got these huge monitors in the, in the control room, very mixing board, you know, that extends from one wall to the other almost and and all the and so the sound is great in there. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and so I sit back on the sofa, he gets out this record, you know, this album, puts it on, and it's close to the edge by yes. That's how I got into fusion. So what's the difference between <coughs> progressive rock mm -hmm. and fusion? Or is are they from the same place, do you think? They're kissing cousins. Okay. You know, you had people like Chick Corea and, and Tony Williams. Tony was really getting into it uh, early because he had his own band called Lifetime. It was him and Larry, the Shaw of Iran, organ player. I can't think of his last name now. And uh, Jack Bruce you know, from Cream.
this record, man, it was just like, you first listen to it, you kind of go, what is that? You know, because they're just blowing, you know. And then you had the Mahavishnu Orchestra, you know, and those all jazz guys mm -hmm. coming out of like straight ahead bebop right into the fusion thing. Billy Cobham, Jan, and John McGoffin, you know, who had Tony Williams introduced John McGoffin to Miles Davis. Okay. And that's how he got here. And after I heard Yes, then I went exploring. Mm -hmm. And I found all these records, you know, I had all of Stanley Clark's solo records, uh, uh, Return to Forever records. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember I would be in my hotel room listening to this, to this music, or maybe I had gone out and you know woke up that morning, found out where the record store was, and and got this new record. You know, and I came back to the hotel and I'm playing it and it's just blowing my mind. I go down to our bass player's room, you know, Woody Smith, and I knock on the door. Woody would not leave his room until it was time to go to the show. He'd eat all his meals in his room, and he watched soap operas and smoked <laughs> cigarettes, and he had a bathrobe, uh -huh. you know, and that's what he did all day. That's one way to stay out of trouble, I guess. <laughs> I guess. It's one way not to experience too much of life. There's that, too. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, Woody, you got to come down and hear this, this new record I got, man. And he kind of go, okay, Smith, okay. And so he'd follow me down the hall, and I put it on for him. And he'd just stand there, you know. He'd listen to one song and listen to another. And then he'd go, so you really like this stuff, don't you? I went, yeah, man. He said, you know, I just can't get into it, Smith. I just can't get into it. I'll see you tonight. <laughs> go back to his room. And so it was just me and my records. And um, when I moved to uh, Los Angeles, Wawa had moved to Los Angeles. And this is Wawa had started playing with Herbie Hancock and, and Barry White and all those people. So Wawa introduced me to Miroslav. He had just done a, a record for Warner Brothers called Magical Shepherd. It was his first solo record. He was out of weather report and he was on his own. So I went over to Miroslav's house, his, his condo. We talked a little bit, you know. He sat down and played piano for me. He had this big grand piano in, in, in the living room, which was pretty much all he had in the living room, that and a couple of chairs. And he just started playing this beautiful stuff on the piano, you know. And I'm like, wow, this guy's a genius mm -hmm. or something, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> so he says, well, you know, uh, let's play some music. Let's start rehearsing. I asked Herbie if I could use his studio because they were going to Europe for two weeks and he's giving me the keys to his studio and, and he gave me the address. He says, let's start tomorrow. And I went, okay. And so I, I have this old 65 Ford Galaxy. And I pile my drums up and that, man, I got, I had so much trouble getting into Beverly Hills with that car, <laughs> which is where Herbie's house was. And we went there every day for two weeks. And it was always, you know, police would pull me over. and They think you didn't belong in the neighborhood? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just a car? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, you just saw me yesterday, right? 
<laughs> you want another autograph? <laughs> and so it was just the two of us, and we go in there, in there, and man, we'd play and play and play, and sometimes we wouldn't come out there for like a couple of hours. We'd been playing straight, just making stuff up. Did it wear on you? It was fun. Okay, it was awesome. Okay, it was great. <laughs> okay, you know. <laughs> And we were just making stuff up, and, and uh, we didn't really start practicing the music on the record until Miroslav moved to Marin County and put the band together in Marin County. I called another friend of mine, bass player, because Miroslav played guitar and bass. He had a double neck instrument. And so he wanted a bass player there so that when he wanted to play guitar, the bottom wouldn't fall out. But the bottom would fall out because... Miroslav's amp was better than Al's amp. Miroslav had a specially made bass, and Al just had a you know store-bought bass, and different technique. But it was great. We had a good time, and we rehearsed in in Marin, and we went out on tour for six months. No, for about four months actually. The tour got such bad reviews that Miroslav retreated back to Marin because it was so different from what he had done before, right? Yeah, and he wasn't playing. People loved his upright playing. He's, his upright playing is beautiful. But he was trying to be McLaughlin, you know, on the guitar and stuff. And when he played his bass, it was fine, but then his guitar playing left a lot to be desired. And so we retreated. He got this great idea to move up to Shasta, California. He rented this house up there. And we went up there and they had this old theater in downtown Shasta, which, by the way, I just visited last month. It's still there. It wasn't being used at that time, and it still had uh, heat was done through by radiator and stuff like that, and it was wintertime. We had a guy in there fixing the radiator every day. You know, ding, 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 <laughs> ding, ding. Then you hear some steam for a little bit. And then... Maybe he was auditioning. <laughs> So we were, we were in there in coats and gloves practicing. And so we had to sneak out of Shasta because the money stopped coming. And we really were wasting money because we weren't getting anything done. And we came back to California. You snuck out to not have to pay the rent? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Went back to Marin. I had this thing, this house on the hill. And the back of the house is all glass. From the living room there, you could see Mount Tamalpais. They call her the sleeping lady. She looks like a woman laying down. And I set up my drums. My view was Mount Shasta. And I would put on records. I put on Miroslav's records because Jack DeJanet was playing. And I tried to learn all of Jack's parts and all that sort of stuff. And uh, Miroslav and I would talk, and, and Miroslav was a, a Nishiren Shoshu Buddhist, so he used to chant. But he was the weirdest chanter because he'd drink beer and chant, um, <laughs> and or snort cocaine and chant. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Maybe it helps. <laughs> so uh, he said, I'm going back to New York. You know what you should do? Because I was listening to Tony Williams, too. Tony, Tony is like my all-time favorite. And he said, you should go to Boston and study with Alan Dawson. That's who Tony studied with, you know? And I went, really? Mm-hmm. He said, yep. He said, you should go to Boston. And I have family in Boston. Half, half my family was in Boston at the time. And so I went, man, that'd be cool. He's teaching at Berkeley. 
So you should try to get into Berkeley and study with him. So I said, okay, great. So I called my Aunt Barbara. She said I could stay there as long as I wanted to. Miroslav had a uh, Mercedes Benz that he wanted to get back to New York. So I drove it from San Francisco. Cross country. Yeah, to New York. It was, it was uh, quite the experience. I had three hitchhikers that I had, picked <laughs> really? up in, I had picked up in San Francisco. One of them I actually knew, and there was a couple there. The woman I had met in a coffee shop, I don't know how she, she kind of overheard me talking about uh, leaving for Boston. You know, as waitresses do, you know, oh, me, me and my boyfriend want to go to Boston so bad. You know, that's where we want to go. Really? You want to go to Boston? Well, why don't you come and ride with me and we'll split the gas. And she thought it was a great idea. And so we did that, and uh, I dropped off my friend in Ohio, I think. We went on to Boston, and then uh, Miroslav was in New York, so I drove the, the car down to New York, and he bought me a plane ticket back to Boston. And I had to find Alan Dawson because as I was enrolling in Berkeley, he was leaving Berkeley. To be an independent teacher? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he didn't need Berkeley. So it took me a while to find him. But I was playing. I had a, I had a cousin who was a cocaine dealer at this club. He got me a gig in this club. And I played that club every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for many months. So I got to meet other musicians, and kind of like my end was I played with Temptations. It was like, so I didn't have to go through a lot of the other stuff. Right. Being a new guy in town, you know, kind of got over that. And I met Bill Pierce, who's a great saxophone player, played with Tony Williams and Art Blakey and a bunch of other people. He's teaching at Berkeley now. He told, told Alan about me. Because I found out that he played with Alan from time to time. And I asked him, I said, man, if you could just introduce me to him, that'd be great. Once I met Alan, it was a direct in because I had some professional experience. Right. And so I started studying with Alan. Alan was like a father figure, very disciplined, had his head on tight and, you know, just a straight shooter, man. We're going to put a bookmark right there for now and pick back up on episode 162 where we'll cover more of Mr. Smith's experience in Boston and then his next adventures with Romeo Void, the 77s, Charlie Peacock, Rich Mullins, Rick Elias, and others. In the corner, back by the woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Canada. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and podbean.com. We'll see you on the flip side.